thanks very much, Marie Louise, for that, uh, that very kind introduction. I might take my hat off and have it on all day. Um, as a Warramai Aboriginal man from the Port Stephens region of New South Wales, uh, I just want to begin by thanking uh, young brother Tyrone Bell, uh, he's not here now but he's here this morning, for his kind welcome to country uh, this morning. And I too respectfully acknowledge the Ngunnawal people and their ancestral lands within which I am again most honoured to be a visitor. I also pay respects to our elders both past and present. I also want to take the time to recognise our Pacific brothers and sisters who have been here with us today. They've been here for the opening of uh, this event over the last few days and have been working with the, the library on the uh, exhibition. And I guess all of us as Indigenous peoples of the Pacific um, have a common connection and that common connection is James Cook. Two days ago, I have to say, I turned 64. <laughs> and when you get a little bit further along the track, <laughs> um, um, you begin to wonder, I mean, you look back over your life and things like that, and I noticed that uh, Maori brother Mark stated that he started school in 1959. That was exactly the same year I did. Now, I look back on my school years, uh, I was at school from 1959 to 1969 and I left the day I turned 15. I don't carry any fond memories of my school years. I didn't receive a lot of encouragement or support through those years. There was nothing about Aboriginal history or culture in the school curriculum then. We had been conveniently missed, forgotten, overlooked, and dare I say, purposefully erased from Australian history. It was all about discoverers, explorers, settlers, and centre stage of all of this whitewashing of history was certainly James Cook. In 2020, the Australian nation will be torn between the Anglo celebrations and the Aboriginal mourning of James Cook's so-called discovery of Australia. And it's been said here a few times today that we weren't lost. In raising the the British flag on Possession Island in the Torres Strait, James Cook unleashed cataclysmic consequences upon Aboriginal people of the Australian continent. As an Aboriginal historian, one cannot but recognise in the wake of this single event the horrific impact and cultural destruction that would explode across the continent in the decades ahead. At its height, the Aboriginal population would teeter on near complete annihilation through disease, warfare and severe government <coughs> policies. Now I recognise that it would be completely unrealistic to think that we would have been, remained, I say, um, immune to outside invasion and its impact, even if James Cook had not stepped ashore in 1770. Now in this discussion I'll concentrate on, on a combination of my contribution to the beautiful catalogue that's been produced by the library, I must say, and an earlier publication, uh, East Coast Encounters, which was with the uh, National Maritime Museum back in 2014, I think that came out. So it's a combination, my, my discussion will be the, the, the paper, the essay I did for the library here and the um, East Coast Encounters book. I will provide an Aboriginal perspective on Cook that examines the complexities and the contradictions of the man and his interactions with Aboriginal Australia and the impact he has had. 
Now, the symbolic use of James Cook by Aboriginal people is widely evident. When Ray Rose, an Aboriginal elder from originally from uh, Dirranbandi in south uh, western Queensland, and I say Uncle Ray's been a part of the Newcastle community for many years, um, when he was asked about his health after he'd suffered a stroke, this is several years ago, he responded, Nah, not too good, mate. I'm Captain Cooked. <laughs> it is this, you know, use of cook in, the, in many ways by Aboriginal people. We do have humour in Aboriginal Australia. <coughs> now, divisions within Australia over differing viewpoints of the navigator, navigator James Cook have already begun to erupt over historical memory and its accuracy. In a recent article, Aboriginal journalist Stan Grant noted the divisive fractures within the United States over the commemoration of Southern leaders of the Civil War period and demanded that the memorials be pulled down. Now, after a walk through Hyde Park in Sydney, Stan Grant drew attention to similar statues in Australia. He noted the monument dedicated to James Cook and its inaccuracy in stating that Cook had in fact discovered Australia. Stan Grant had no idea that his comment would incite such a backlash of heated opposition. Stan was not calling for the statue to be torn down, nor suggesting that Cook's memory should be devalued. Grant simply asked for an amendment to be made on the plaque to recognise what is now scientifically recognised as over 65,000 years of Aboriginal connection to this continent. Grant recognised that Cook was not simply, and I quote, a figure cast in bronze, a statue, but the man James Cook, a man of doubt and fear, and perseverance and undoubted courage. I am like Grant, an admirer of James Cook as a skilled navigator and an inspiring leader of his crews. Cook's working-class upbringing instilled in him a capacity to view the world through a different lens. And he was instrumental in fostering loyalty in the crews that sailed under him. As I said before, in 2014, I went on board the Endeavour Replica at the Australian National Maritime Museum in Darling Harbour as part of the East Coast Encounter exhibition and forum. Now, I was struck by what an achievement it was to sail such a tiny craft across such a vast distance and through some terrifying seas. I still look back to going on that ship, but it's... I mean, you finished up, you had to be like this to get a down and around. I mean, it was... That must have been midgets on that ship. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was so small. I mean, the, the size of the ship struck me. So it, wasn't, it certainly was an achievement. But what of his journey to Botany Bay and his orders in relation to Aboriginal people? Cook had received secret instructions from the British Admiralty, and as such, from the Crown itself, which advised that in the event he found the continent, he should chart its coasts, obtain information about its people, cultivate their friendship and alliance, and appropriate any convenient trading posts in the King's name. But clearly, Cook did not open up any meaningful dialogue or discussion, nor did he gain any consent in claiming the entire east coast of the continent. 
As such, he was in direct violation of his orders from the Crown. In fact, the evidence that can be gleaned from his own records clearly implies the opposite. As Cook sets down in his journal, all they seemed to want was us to be gone. There was no welcome mat of consent rolled out. The arrogance of Cook's actions in claiming possession of the continent without any alliance with or consent from the owners and the ignorance on his part that this suggests stands in stark contrast to his glowing written record which speaks of a paradise of equality. And I quote, In reality, this is an often quote, an often used quote, In reality, they are far more happier than we Europeans, being wholly unacquainted not only with the superfluous, but the necessary conveniences so much sought after in Europe. They are happy in not knowing the use of them. They live in a tranquillity which is not disturbed by the inequality of condition. The earth and sea of their own accord furnishes them with all things necessary for life. They live in a warm and fine climate and enjoy a very wholesome air. Now, and this would later come be recognised as well when um, in 1788, um, when the first settlement arrived here and a lot of the settlers as they moved across were saying how healthy Aboriginal people were. And up in my area, um, in Newcastle and Port Stephens, um, Lieutenant Coke, a British Marine, was saying that Aboriginal women were diving into what is now Newcastle <coughs> Harbour and coming to the surface with lobsters three and four times in each hand, uh, four times the size of anything we've ever seen in Europe. And what magnificent specimens Aboriginal people were. Healthy, healthy specimens. Now remember <coughs> Cook's comment and that the Britain of Cook's time was one of shocking inequality. Raw sewage flowed through the streets of London. Filth and disease was rampant. Cook clearly uh, could not but note the stark difference to his homeland of the way Aboriginal people were living here. Cook and his impact upon Aboriginal Australia has been widely incorporated into Aboriginal songs, stories and understandings in the aftermath of 1770. Anthropologist Deborah Bird Rose, the late uh, Japanese historian Minoru Hakari, and even more recently the celebrated author Peter Carey are just a few who have drawn attention to the residual Aboriginal memory of James Cook. These accounts feature Aboriginal people in northern and remote Australia stating that James Cook had visited their communities and he'd been shooting people, raping their women and taking the land. Cook's impact was clearly far-reaching and its memory was persistent. One such story revealed, this is up actually from the Kimberley, the old fellow says, long way back beginning, right back beginning, I don't know, but this the biggest troubling. Ah, when that Captain Cook frame came from Big England and come through down to Sydney Harbour, and a lot of Aboriginal people were down to Sydney Harbour. Well, he was the one that hit the Sydney Harbour. He should have asked him, one of these bosses for Sydney Aboriginal people. Captain Cook didn't give him a fair go to tell him, good day, or hello, you know, because Captain Cook came very cheeky, you know. He don't ask, make sure or quieten them. You know, make it right. What this Aboriginal elder was stating 
was that clearly James Cook did not he adhere to Aboriginal protocol and open discussion and dialogue. These interpretations of this historical moment spread across the continent. Some clearly did not see the original Cook as the one to blame. And another older fellow who was interviewed said, too many Captain Cooks had been stealing all the women and killing people. They had made war. War makers, these new Captain Cooks. All the Captain Cooks came and called themselves welfare mob. <laughs> they wanted to take all of Australia. Of course, we know that James Cook did not visit Central Australia or the Kimberley, but this recognition illustrates how deeply the event has been burned into Aboriginal consciousness. The memory of Cook is simply a way of recording history that is sensible in its own terms and location. Aboriginal people are clearly, historically, widely aware of the consequences of the British arrival and its impact. Just a little bit dry. Mm -hmm. But it is not just Central Australia and the Kimberley where Cook's memory has resonated so powerfully and continues to do so. Communities in southeastern Australia where Cook most certainly did have a direct impact have maintained and built Cook into their understandings of the past and everyday language. Sandy Cameron, Jaeger elder on the north coast of New South Wales, was interviewed by linguist Terry Crowley in 1973, and he recorded a song in language of James Cook's visit. Cameron explained, it was this Captain Cook. He was the king of the tribe, and had all this tin stuff and plonk and tobacco. All the dark people had a look, He's a Wurriban, a Wurriban. That's a boat. That's a ship coming in. And they say, Warai, who's this ship coming in? And Captain Cook shouldn't have bowed the boat with the bush. Just as much to say, he's a friend, friend coming in. He jumped on a little boat. And when he paddled in, he left the big boat outside. Big sailing, you know. Walked in waving. The chief of the tribe went to them with boomerangs and spears. No, he said, Wana, Wana, stop. Chief said, I'll stop all of them with the spear and the boomerang. They made friends, give them tobacco and clay pipe. You don't buy them anymore. Penny each one time, shilling a dozen. And fed all right, shook hands, made friends, and they was there. And this is a song I made up myself. Sandy Cameron then broke into a song in lingo about Cook and his coming ashore. In stating firmly that Captain Cook shouldn't have bowed the boat with the bush, and that the old chief had called out, no, wanna, wanna, stop. The message conveyed is that Cook and his crew initially should not have come ashore. The Ewan people on the south coast of New South Wales retained oral memories that recognised the lack of any formal consent or contact with Cook. Cook's maps were very good, but they did not show us our names for places. He didn't ask us. Aboriginal people across New South Wales derisively sung songs lampooning James Cook. In Armidale, they converted a young children's school rhyming song into their own dirty ditty. Captain Cook chased a chook all around Australia. He slipped on a rock and split his cock-a-doodle dandy. Similar songs were sung at the Karua Mission 
near Port Stephens. And my good friend Ray Kelly informed me that as a kid on the Mish at Armadale, he knew older people who when they spotted a welfare officer or even an unknown gubber, I mean, you know what a gubber is, it's a white person, or even an unknown gubber would say, looky, looky, here comes Cookie. <laughs> the humour and retained bitter memory of James Cook and what he represents <coughs> remain etched, etched deeply within the fabric of many Aboriginal communities on the east coast of Australia. Cook is still at the top of the heap of historical bogeymen. And as I've stated elsewhere, he transcends time and space to wreak havoc across the continent upon the Aboriginal inhabitants over the course of the past 250 years. Now, whether he deserved this monster mantle is open to conjecture and certainly challenge from wider non-Indigenous Australia. But from an Aboriginal perspective, Cook remains the prime scapegoat for white invasion. Now, I'll finish with a, a song story poem from the late, great David Mawaljari which captures the severity of the cultural collision, but in its closing words reveals, despite everything, that we are still here. We are still connected to the land and all within it. We are the people of this continent. Nothing can change that. And I say, state, I am Warrawa, I am Marinyan, I am Wunnambul. Once I walked my country, but lost my place. Then I lost my dignity, spirit. Once when I walked my country, I was lizard and kangaroo. I was turkey and emu. And the Wanjina walked with me. Now I have lost my place. I am grog and despair. I am sickness and early death. And the Wanjina can't walk in jails. How did I leave my country? What brought me out of my land? Can I remember? Did I ever know? I must remember. I must know. Might be an illusion that holds me from country. For I am Warrawa. I am lizard and kangaroo. I am turkey and emu. And I am spirit, rock. And I am Wanjina. Thank you. conversation to be had if it wasn't all sort of narrowed down just to, to Captain Cook because as I mean as you indicated yourself if not Cook then someone else and Cook could claim this land to his you know to his heart's content but if they hadn't had overflowing prison hulks on the Thames the Imperial government wouldn't have made certain decisions 
but I guess everything comes back to a particular man. So if on the one hand, you've got people that think he was a man who did his job well, um, is it more divisive to just sort of use that man as the, the symbol rather than maybe decisions made by the imperial government? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point, you know, that's right. But I guess for us, you know, for Aboriginal people, we've got to have someone to blame. And as I said, he's, yeah. beca- he's taken on... He's got a good name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's taken on that yeah. mantle. But, but as those stories from the 70s and 80s and 90s with Aboriginal people in Central Australia and, and um, Arnhem Land and, and, and certainly up in the Kimberley, where Cook certainly never went, I mean, and one of those stories said it wasn't that Cook, it wasn't the, you know, that James Cook, it was all them other Captain Cooks. So, you know, the, it was being deflected onto every other area, and that could have been government policy, the people who were coming in um, into the area. So, yeah, I, and, and I think probably the next few years there's going to be a lot more discussion on this, certainly a lead up to 2020 as well. But I think this is a good starting point. I mean, it's, it's important to have these discussions. I think... The country still has a long way to go. I mean, you, you can't heal unless you actually deal with the past. And then we can all move on from that. But there's this great reluctance to look at it and deal with... I'm not just talking about Cook, but you know, the whole gamut of massacres and violence and stolen generations and the policies that impact on to Aboriginal people. There was that study by Noel Butler, I mean, as an example, um, which Butler, and that was in the 80s, said that only four decades after the British arrived on this continent, the Aboriginal population had been decimated from somewhere between 60 to 90%. And that's a massive loss of life in only four decades. Um, you know, it's, it's catastrophic. You can't, I actually pinch myself that I'm still here, that, that my family actually survived that level of violence. And certainly from where I come from, in Port Stevens, there was the timber getters and the, the vigilante groups that went out and massacred, and also the disease. I like Butler. I mean, Butler's in, in that study in the 80s is questioned because he actually puts the Aboriginal population as much larger than what others have put it at. He was looking at a population of about a million. If you're looking at 60 to 90 percent of a million, that's a lot of bloody people gone in four decades. Um, but through disease, you know, as well as the impact of that. So. Um, it's, you know, we've, we've got to look at these things, we've got to deal with these things and we've got to move on. And I personally think that myself, and we've had these discussions for some time, a treaty is a great way to go from that and heal from that process and recognise um, you know, <coughs> Aboriginal sovereignty of the country. And then we can all deal with that and take great pride. I think one of the greatest treasures the country's got is 65,000 years of indigenous cultural connection with this continent. It's a massive time frame. Wonderful stories and connection and culture. Celebrate that, you know, and that's you know, it's the way to go. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Thanks John, and thanks for your books too. <laughs> I'm not, not denying for a moment anything you've said. It, it rings terribly true, all of it. Um, my question, though, is, 
from an Aboriginal perspective, or from your reading of Aboriginal perspectives, is there any upside to Cook and what came after? Um, well, it's a, it's a hard one to, to answer. I mean, we heard the, the panel here this morning. They were talking about there were a lot of benefits. I mean, from and that was you know, Tongan, you know, Maori, and, and certainly Aboriginal from Queensland were saying that the impact of that, that Cook's arrival, there were upsides to that, and that there were you know things that have, you know that were taken on board from that particular point in time. I think um, and we heard about glass and, uh, as a, a critical thing. Um, steel, steel implements were other things that were taken on board as far as trade is concerned and that sort of stuff. Um, it's hard to go and find a lot of good things when you've got the impact of that um, massive impact of loss of life. And that's one thing, I, and I, again, about those population sizes which I spoke about. When Philip was in Sydney, he actually, it's in his, his diaries and his records that there was something 10,000 people Aboriginal people in that region of Sydney. I've looked at the area of Newcastle and there was one clan, there's six clans in the region of Newcastle, one clan, the Pemberlum clan, one settler said their um, numbers were over 4,000. And again, you know, in the space of only a few decades, there's 140, you know. That's an incredible loss of life, very suddenly, you know. So looking for the benefits, I mean, you know, from, from our perspective, it's... Not easy. Yeah, not easy. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. I enjoyed your talk. You mentioned that uh, up in Possession Island that uh, Cook claimed the continent this Australia. Place. Um, could you explain why Governor Philip only claimed the eastern half of uh, the continent? Now Cook only claimed the east coast. I mean, that was that was when he put that. He didn't claim the continent. Right. So yeah, I misheard the, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he didn't claim the continent. Cook put the flag down, and he claimed the east coast of Australia, which was then followed up by Philip as well right. in regards to Sydney. Yeah. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Clarify that. <laughs> John, thanks for your talk. Um, it was um, terribly moving. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you have a thought or you talk with communities in a way that most of us can't, unfortunately. I'm not going to the politicians. I'm too despairing about them. <laughs> but do you think there's a fear on the part of Australians about letting Aboriginal people in to our lives, to our constitution, to our constitution, do you sense that there's a fear or do you think something else blocks us moving our politicians to reconciliation and justice? Yeah, look, it's a hard one to answer. I mean, for me, the, the, the how can you say, the sentiments in wider um, white Australia fluctuates. I mean, we certainly come through a very vibrant period. The 60s was a time of great social and political change. I mean, it was an enormously divisive war in Vietnam. There was the civil rights movement in the United States, and suddenly Aboriginal people started to appear. Charlie Perkins and the Freedom Ride. We had the Gurindji walk off with Wave Hill, and we had a lot of support through the trade union movement to the Gurindji. 
the 67 referendum, you know, that sort of a 10-year campaign of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people together who fought for that nearly nine, well, 92% and a little bit more of the population supporting us. The Aboriginal tent embassy in 1972, Gary Foley will tell you, there was a lot of students from ANU, non-Indigenous students, who were a part of that movement. There was a, certainly a feeling coming through the 70s and into the 80s of great excitement that we were Aboriginal history. And people like Henry Reynolds and Curdoys and Peter Reid and others, and Aboriginal people were beginning to move into the academy. I was 40 when I first walked through the gate of the university. As I said when I started this, I left school when I was 15. I spent the next 25 years in a whole variety of jobs, none even remotely related to academia or education. And I was actually went to university, not even to enrol first off, I was writing up family history on my grandfather, a very prominent early Aboriginal activist. Then I was kidnapped by a Murray Aboriginal woman, Tracy Bunder, into doing a diploma and a degree and a PhD, and I'm suddenly, here I am, these years later, a professor. But the whole point I want to say is, through that period of the 70s and 80s, we've mobilised, and I think we've won middle Australia at that particular point. I mean, it was an exciting time. The whole thought of treaty was, was in the air. That was happening. The Hawke government was... But all of a sudden, they took a complete backflip and the treaty was gone. And, of course, the sentiment of the country completely changed through the 90s and it's gone back the other way. And we've... We've certainly lost that middle ground of Australia and that support, and it's a, it's a hard-fought area. It's a political football. We will always be a heavily marginalised minority unless we mobilise non-Indigenous support. And as I've said earlier, with those big moments where we've made an impact, with Charlie Perkins and the Freedom Ride and the Gurindji Walk-Off, the 67 referendum and the 10 embassy, was when we've mobilised non-Indigenous Australians. And we have to reach out and get that support again. And it's a battleground. Um, but as far as convincing politicians, I don't hold much faith. <laughs> you know, as I said, for us, I mean, the Liberals will stab you in the stomach and the Labor will stab you in the back and the end result is bleedingly obvious you're going to get stabbed. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very hard, um, hard-fought area for us. But... As I said, we've got to we've got to mobilise again. We've got to march. We've got to speak out, and we've got to get the support from people like yourselves to uh, stand up and speak with us to make change. I mean, you see, when you said go out to communities, I spent a lot of the 90s in working with Aboriginal Islander Health and going out into communities. And the things you see today with youth suicide, I mean, I was seeing that back in the 90s. And I mean, the things that I've seen over the last 25, 30. You know, 40 years, the reality is it's not improving. It's always for us governments, we know what's best for you. The critical thing is for them to sit down with us, listen to Aboriginal people. Um, we're on the ground with what's going on. We're the, we're the ones that give the best guidance. And as I said before about my grandfather um, and the rise of early Aboriginal activism, you know, 94 years ago, and my grandfather's political platform back in the 20s was demanding enough land for each and every Aboriginal family in the country. It was to stop the process of state protection boards removing Aboriginal kids from their families. It was demanding the ab ab abolishment of the Aborigines protection boards to be replaced by an all Aboriginal board to sit under the Commonwealth Government. 
it was to defend a distinct Aboriginal cultural identity. And we're, here we are, 94 years later, we're still fighting for the same things. So, these are, you know, it's an ongoing thing, you know, but we've still got to keep battling. John, um, I really enjoyed your presentation. Really good. Um, I just want to know what your thoughts are on the way forward. How can we bring everybody together more? I know you've said a, mm. you've mentioned a few things, but what can we do as a group of people who support, you know, what you want to do? Mm. And, and have you got anybody in particular in mind who could sort of? Um, represent the Aboriginal people. I mean, I know there are some people who say they represent Aboriginal people, but they don't necessarily do that. So how mm. would that particular problem be overcome as well? Well, I think it's a, it's a problem we face, and I'm, I, I'm, I, I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer, I confess. And the biggest issue we've got today is the divisions of the factions and infighting in our own communities. And the frustration and, and depression that that causes. And for me, it all stems from native title in reality. It's, you know, I mean, I've mentioned Gary Foley before, as Foley will say, that's Mickey Mouse, that's not um, land rights. Mickey Mouse, native title. Um, it's not. And the reality is that. Um, um, We've got, to, we've got to go back, and I, I, everywhere I go and speak with our mob, says, look, we've got to be united. We can't, make, we can't make any difference unless we are a united people. And as I said, we've got to heal those divisions and factions. I mean, our communities are fighting over crumbs that have been thrown on the ground through, through native title. That's one of the big issues that we've got to face. We've got to get over that and all come back together and actually you know, fight to make change for the good of all Aboriginal people. That's the, that's the crucial thing. And I agree, I and mean, we've got people out there now, but mostly they're selected by the media or they're selected by the government. You know, you've got to have grassroots Aboriginal support um, to get people in those particular positions. But um, um, for us, it's not easy to do that, <laughs> to no, get that support is, from those spaces. It is, big, it is a big problem, and yeah. <coughs> it, it is going to take a long time. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I'll see. I don't know if I'll be here. I was going to say that too. I don't know if I'll be here. Well, I know there is a willingness on the yeah. part of a lot of people, like non-Indigenous people as yeah. well, who want to try and help. But yeah. how look, do we do it? Yeah, I, I guess in one in one side, look, in, to give one thought of inspiration. As I said, I I, I came to university um, twenty was it late nineteen ninety three. So that's what twenty five years ago now. And the change, I mean, I mentioned Charlie Perkins, and he was with Gary Williams at the University of Sydney in 1964. It was two Aboriginal men. Today, I mean, there's Aboriginal centres right across the country in universities. Aboriginal students at Newcastle, we've got a magnificent two-storey all-purpose building shaped like Eaglehawk Wings, which is the totem of the local group. There's over 40 all-Indigenous staff in that building. We have over 1,000 Indigenous students at that university which is the biggest number in the country. Um, and that success is going on all around the country. So we are growing these particular places. A few, 
Well, it must be several years ago when I was actually head of Wallatooka, the Aboriginal Education Centre at Newcastle, and we, we held the um, uh, engin Indigenous Engineering Summer School, and we had um, 26 or 27 Indigenous students from urban, rural and remote communities. These were 15 and 16 year old kids. And what that lifted me was, these are articulate, confident kids able to express themselves. You know, I would have been terrified, you know, and it opened my mouth at that age in a space like that. But these were kids, I said, for me, it's the next generation where we're going to see the big change come through. And we've just got to be content and treading water till we see these young people come into the space. So there is hope for the future. Stay strong. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.